Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is taking us through a series that brings a biblical focus to family. The series is called Families by the Book. In this series, we are looking at what real biblical parenting looks like in the home. Today's talk is titled, The Successful Parent. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. are beginning a new mini-series in this series called Families by the Book. And that implies, when we say by the book, it means that there's a standard by which something is judged. If you've played sports, there's a rule book. There's something, if you play board games, there's a, there's a rule book there as well. We've all got to play by the rules to enjoy this thing the way it was meant to be. Now, out there in the world, they would, they would argue that there is no book. There is no standard by which we are judged. There is no standard for marriage. There is no standard for parenting. It's just sort of every man for himself, whatever you think is okay. You know, but the Bible calls that doing that which is right in your own eyes. And that wasn't a very bright period of Israel's history and the period of judges when every man did that which is right in his own eyes. There is a book and it speaks to every area of our life. I know because the Bible says that in this, in these precious promises, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything we need to be rightly related to God and everything we need to be rightly related to man. Does the Bible speak to marriage and parenting issues? It sure does, all over the place. It's, it's sprinkled all throughout the scriptures, little admonitions. And because of that, there's no one scripture that I can go to. Normally, we'll just kind of exposit a text and we'll just kind of work our way through it. But unfortunately, here, we're gonna be, as this message is sort of an intro of sorts, we're gonna be looking at a number of different related scriptures. Now, when we talk about parenting, some of you may be, there's sort of a collective groan at this point because it's, it's not an easy subject. It's a difficult one. And it's one that we're kind of forced to face, you know, what did I do as my children were growing up? It may be too that, you know, we're just, we're kind of feeling bad. There's some things that we wish we could have done differently. Can I just tell you, there's not a soul here, there's not a parent here who doesn't look back and say, you know, I could have done things a little bit better. There's no perfect parent. The first point is that there, a, a successful parent isn't perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. If you have to be perfect to be successful, there's no successful parents out there. And so it's not that you have to be perfect. We all have stories we can tell, can't we? The bad thing about a pastor is I have to tell you my... I could pick on any number of, you know, failures and things that I did that I wished I could have done differently as a parent, but the first story that kind of popped into my mind as I was preparing for this message was I remember a, a particularly busy time of our life and I was doing bivocational work. I was working out at Disney and doing a church plant. Now that's like two full-time jobs right there. And so I was worn out and I come home one night and my wife is away that night because at the time she was trying to help out the family. She was doing some Mary Kay or whatever. She was at a unit meeting. And so it's just me and the kids. You'd think as busy as I was then that this would be a perfect opportunity for dad to have a little quality time with the kids, right? Not this time. Instead, I came home and I was worn out and so I went out to my garage office and I flipped open my laptop and I decided, I'm just gonna play a little game or something, divert my mind, play a little game called Age of Empires. And so while I was 
saving the 13th century from Genghis Khan and his oppressive rule on the earth, my daughter Mackenzie was just kind of wandering around the house, wasn't quite sure what to do, and you know, dad is just off in his own world, and she wanders into the kitchen, and and she's reaching up as high as she can, and her hand reached a knob. It just so happens this knob was on the stove. And I just so happened to have gone to Walmart on the way home. And instead of putting those bags on the counter, I put it on the, you can see where I'm going with this, I put it on the stove. And so there's boxes, there's cardboard. I'd even bought like a full box of like 36 count plastic dominoes. And so I I smell something from the garage and we come out here and and there's flames reaching the ceiling. I don't even know what was in there. Maybe it was the dominoes that was making it go up like that. And it was just, you know, she's freaking out. I'm like, what do we do? And I'm, I'm trying to, you know, stamp this fire out. And have you ever smelled burning plastic? It's the smell of absentee parenting, okay? That's where I was, and, and it, this is just one of these many times that I'm not proud of. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a real thoughtful or attentive parent at this point. But we all have things like that, or there's other things we can point to in the parenting of our children that we can look back and say, wow, I really blew it there. It's okay. Having failures as a parent, times where we were weak, doesn't make us a bad parent. But being a successful parent means that we're doing it by the book. We're doing as best we know how what God asks us to do. And God does have several things to say about that. Now, I've found that when we begin a series on parenting, my wife and I, we've been teaching on parenting for a number of years. We've done conferences and things uh, overseas in China. And when we talk about parenting, we've found that there tend to be one of two real extremes, denial or despair. These are the extreme reactions to it. Denial is we say, hey, we're gonna start teaching on parenting, and we throw up some walls. Well, this isn't for me, and I'll tell you why. Some of those reasons, denial has multiple reasons. Maybe one of those is they feel like, well, you know, the Bible's an antiquated book. What does it really know about parenting in the modern age? And so it's kind of a dodge. I don't really need to listen to what God says about parenting because the Bible's an old book. Well, if you're gonna say that about parenting, what, you know, the Bible's an old book about a lot of things. Is it, is it wrong on morality? Is it wrong on marriage? Is it wrong on how we get saved and how we come to know God? If, if you're gonna use that dodge, friends, you can kind of clip and cut and paste the entire Bible to your liking. You can be Thomas Jefferson, you heard of the Jefferson Bible. He cut it all up, the things he didn't like. And so another form of denial is that maybe you'll go through and you'll read the text verbatim and you'll just simply explain what the text says and somebody will still say, well, that's just your opinion. You know, it, it's what the Bible says. And so we, our flesh tries to find ways to dodge out from under what the Bible says about parenting because parenting passages can be uncomfortable. It's where we have to kind of face where we live day by day. Another dodge might be this. Parenting series, really? I'm single, I don't even have kids. What's wrong with that? Are you gonna stay single your whole life? You don't know, you don't know who's God's gonna lead down your path. Another denial when we go to parenting is you're like, my kids are grown and gone, like my kids are. They're grown and gone. I don't need to learn anything about parenting. Or, or you might think, I'm a widow, or I'm a, you know, I'm, a, I'm a single man. You know, I'm 75 years old. I don't, there's nothing that you could possibly say here that is applicable to me, and you feel like kind of just checking out. Can I encourage you not to do this? Not to come to church with a consumer mindset. We just kind of evaluate everything based upon what's good for me, and we just kind of sit back and go, well, I don't really like all the music. 
Or I don't really like the pews. They're kind of uncomfortable. I wish we had those soft chairs like the church down the street. Or I don't really like the temperature. It's too hot or it's too cold. I don't really like the sermon. It's too long. It's too short. Or it's on parenting. You know, it's, is there, are there times in the Bible where God wants us to learn something not as much for us, but so that we can be a blessing to others? Did you know that's why we're supposed to come to church, by the way? The Bible says when we gather ourselves together, Hebrews 10, 24, 25, talk about don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, you know, but gather all the more. But he also talks about when you gather, he says, seek out that you might stir one another up to love and good works. That when we come to church, it's not with what am I getting from it, but how am I giving to others? This is one of those ways that if you don't have kids at home anymore, can you still learn this and give it to other people? Maybe you got kids, maybe you got grandkids and they want counsel from you. Better know what the Bible says. Or is it possible that there are people here in this church, young folks that we wanna connect you with, maybe you're a D group leader and all of a sudden they have questions about parenting that bubble up into your D group. Wouldn't you like to know what God's word says about it? So let's not get to a place where we're in denial. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, three through six said, blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction, amen. Love those verses that talk about me, what God gives me, right? But what does he say about that? He says, so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction. He says, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort. It's for your salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort. Several times, Paul is saying that the, the comfort, the, the truth that, of God's word, it does bring comfort to our hearts, but so that, that we can take what God gave us and give it away continually to other people. And so even if you feel like this message is entirely irrelevant to you, can I, can I tell you, please pay attention and listen though, because you never know that God doesn't wanna use you to comfort others in this area where they're struggling. The Bible isn't just about me and what I get from it. The Bible is, is God's truth and how I can be a blessing to other people through it. The other extreme response is despair. These are those people when we're reading through God's word and we talk about what a parent is supposed to be and you look and you're just like, I'm no good. I'm just, I've blown it. I've ruined my kids forever. And we start going all Barney Fife and catastrophizing, you know, and, you know, one day Opie, you know, he's not, you know, raking the lawn and then that's going to lead to somehow he's going to be a career criminal someday. And we just feel like we've totally ruined our family. Can I encourage you not to, to do this either? Even if you're completely sad, maybe you did blow it. Maybe you, you know, you've sinned against your children in the worst possible way you can imagine. Can I tell you that there's forgiveness with God and that you can put things behind you? Paul himself, remember the apostle Paul? Paul was a man that before he came to Christ, he was the worst of the worst. Paul, that's why he calls himself the chief of sinners. He was the, he's as bad as they come. He persecuted the church. He chained up Christians. He shut churches down. Do you know that it was the Apostle Paul that basically consented to the death of the church's first martyr, Stephen? It was Paul's fault. Paul's the one that's like, do it. Paul's the only man in the Bible that Jesus Christ personally knocked off his donkey and said, you're persecuting me. Paul, you're persecuting, persecuting the God of the universe. Now, is there anybody here who's been that bad? Okay. And yet Paul can write in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, he says, and straining forward to what lies ahead. God doesn't care where you've been. God doesn't care about the mistakes that you've made in the past, the sins that you've made. Even if you were like Paul, persecuting God's church, there's forgiveness on the other side of that. That man wrote this. And even though he was an apostle and used to pen a good part of the New Testament, 
he still looked at himself and said, you know what, I still have room to grow. So there's nobody in here that doesn't have room to grow. Even if you're 95 years old, is there room to grow? Yeah, because we're not entirely perfect like Christ. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect. Paul admits, as an apostle, a man who did miraculous things and healed people and wrote scripture, personally visited by Jesus, he says, I haven't already obtained it. I'm not perfect. But he doesn't use that as an excuse either. A lot of times with parenting, we love to gloat in the fact, huh, nobody's perfect, nobody's perfect, you know, imperfect parents. And we use sometimes that as an excuse to just stop trying altogether. And we just all kind of wallow in our imperfection and we kind of rejoice in that. Well, since we're no, not perfect, don't worry about trying to be a good parent. But what does Paul say? Not that I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He says, I haven't, I haven't obtained all the truth of the universe. I haven't obtained all the maturity of the universe. But he says, what I do is I, I'm not perfect, but I'm perfectible. I'm humble enough to allow God to continue to speak into my life. Remember, this is a man who has already been trained by the finest teachers in the world, Gamaliel. The finest teachers in the world. Paul was like, he would, it would be the example of like a, a PhD Harvard scholar saying, you know what? I still have a lot to learn. So there's no perfect parrot. Paul himself wasn't perfect. I'll say number two, a successful parent follows a standard. Everything that we do in life is based upon some kind of truth, every decision that you make. Now, when it comes to parent, parenting, what's gonna be your standard? Is it gonna be your buddies at work? You know, we all kind of sit around the water cooler, sit down at lunch, and we talk about how difficult a time we're having with our children, and they give you parenting advice. Is, is that the standard? With, or on Facebook, you just kind of throw it out there. I've seen parents do this, please don't with your kids, especially if they're teens. I've seen parents throw up what's the equivalent of a signal flare. <laughs> you know, help me, my kid is rebelling, what do I do? And then people give all their collective advice and counsel. Is that how we figure out? We just kind of poll the audience and vote. What do you think, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? Is truth found in popular opinion? If it is, then in Germany, Nazism was a good thing because popular vote figured that out. So popular vote, and biblically speaking, is popular vote the standard of truth? It's not. In fact, if you're, if you're going along with what most of the rest of the world is doing, what path are you probably on? Are you on the narrow path that leads to life? The Bible says that's a wide gate that leads to destruction. If your parenting style matches what most of the people out there in the school system believe, if it's what most of your friends believe, it's what most of the world applauds and says, well done, parent, you're probably on the wide path. Or at least following the counsel of the wide path. We don't, we don't measure ourselves by that. We don't even measure ourselves simply by our parents. Some of you had good parents, some of you had difficult ones. You know, I also, I heard of a, a young lady once, the mom was trying to give her some counsel, and she says, hey, hey, everything I need to learn from parenting, I'll get it from Google. She's just gonna go online and get everything she needs from Google. Is Google a good standard for parenting? Google is just a backhoe in the trash heap of the internet world. You know, there's good stuff in there. You might find a working toaster, you know, or a shirt that's good that somebody threw away, but it's just digging through piles of dirty diapers and coffee grounds, you know, and Google's only as good as the website you stumble into. And so Google's not a good way to figure out, you know, how to raise your kids because there's more junk out there than helpful things. Now, here's what you're gonna hear most often. What's my standard for parenting? A lot of people think it's me. I'm the standard for parenting. You do what's good for you, right? I'll do what's good for me. If that's true for you, then it's true. If this is true for me, then it's true. Is that true? <laughs> 
For truth to be truth, there's only one kind of truth, and it's objective truth. If it's not objective truth, it's not truth. It's simply an opinion. Truth isn't something that we create. Truth, isn't something, truth is something that we discover. Nobody creates truth. It's not like, oh, Brad, do you think this is true? Then it's true for you. Oh, Amber, you think this is true? Then it's true for you. If everybody's right, then no one is. But there is a standard that we can look to outside of us, a book, if you will, that will show us how to raise children well. But if we're leaning on ourselves, is there a danger in that? In just trusting that what I think is good for my kids is good? You know, if you're one of those parents, and I've heard this a hundred times, you know, I'm their mama, I know what's best for my child. What's wrong with that statement? Yes, you are responsible for doing what's best for that child, but just having a kid, do you innately know? Does it just get uploaded into you as soon as you birth a child? You, you know everything there is about parenting? It didn't happen with me. You know, we have this kid in this hospital, and Aaron and I are going, what do we do outside of feeding this kid? You know, and so the best thing we ever did as a parent is to acknowledge that, you know what, we had a kid, we know nothing about how to raise him, and we went to wise, gray-headed people and said, help me. <laughs> we don't know. We need help. But there's a lot of people who, because of pride, believe that nobody has the right to tell you how to treat your kids. And you're right, I don't. I don't have a right to tell you how to raise your children. But who does have a right to tell you how to raise your kids? Does God have a right to tell you how to raise these kids? By the way, these aren't your kids. These are God's kids. We're children of God. And so we have a responsibility to raise them up in a way that honors God, to point that child's heart toward the Lord. When we just rely on ourselves, let me give you just a few verses here. If you're trusting in yourself right now to just do what feels good to you when it comes to parenting, the Bible has a few things to say. Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Now, in this whole world, there's nothing more deceitful than your own heart. Your heart is always going to lie to you. It's going to tell you what you want to hear. You just pull yourself. Your heart's going to say whatever your flesh wants to hear, what's going to make you comfortable, what's going to make you feel good. It's not going to give you truth. In fact, he says, it's desperately wicked. Our hearts are bent and crooked apart from Christ. He says, who can know it? Who can trust it? Who can lean on the counsel that your heart has? And so while the world out there in our pop songs is saying, listen to your heart, what does God's word say? Listen to me. Listen to me. Don't, in fact, there's, there's verses that continue on. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man. You look at it, you're like, hmm, that looks about right. But he says, but its ends are the way of death. That sometimes as a man, we make decisions. We're like, this looks right, and it's not. Proverbs 3, 5, and 7 specifically tell us not to trust ourselves. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And he says specifically, do not lean or to trust in your own understanding, just how you view things. Be not wise in your own eyes. So God has a lot to say about don't trust yourself. Don't trust just your gut feelings. The world will tell you that, but God's gonna say you need to do things by the book. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Seek wisdom that comes from outside of you. And we have to say this because we can't just begin teaching on parenting because a lot of people will just tune you out. Pew. You've got nothing to say to me. It's just whatever I feel like doing with my kid, you feel like doing with your kid, what you want. But our goal is not to just simply raise kids in a way that is pleasing to us. Our, our goal as a parent, as a Christian parent, is to raise our kids in a way that is pleasing to God. We're gonna see number three here. A successful parent, we have to define success biblically. You know, if you read any kind of business book, some kind of self-help book, leadership book, one of the principles you're going to read is begin with the end in mind. You know, if you're gonna start a shoe factory today and you're like, we're gonna make shoes, hot dog, I'm gonna hire you, 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 and 
you're gonna start a shoe factory, what's the first thing you have to figure out what you're gonna do? What kind of shoe are we making? Are we making tennis shoes? Are we making dress shoes? Are we making sandals? What are we making? You have to figure out the end before you can build it. You don't just build a factory and say, wow, we got all these machines in here. What do you suppose we can make with this? You begin with the end in mind. And the same thing with a parent. To be a successful parent, you have to kind of decide for yourself, what is it that we're hoping to build into this child? What is it that this child needs to become to be successful? Well, God has a few things to say about that. Let's see, we're gonna play a little game here. I'm gonna read you a few verses, see if you can find what's in common with them, okay? Proverbs 27, 11, he says, be wise, my son, and make my heart glad. Proverbs 10, 1, he says, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 15, 20, a wise son will make a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. If you haven't figured out what ties these together, by the way, I highlighted them all in yellow. Try to make it easy. It was snowy this morning. We're tired. We showed up to church a little groggy. So these verses, what, what is God connecting? Two things, a wise son and what? A glad father. You guys are sharp. Wise son, glad father. These go together. God has rigged parenting. God will not allow us to be lazy poor parents and still receive a joyous, glad life. God has rigged our happiness to the way that we parent our children. A wise son makes a glad father. Well, if wisdom is what makes us happy, not necessarily that your kid just grew up to be, you know, homecoming king or, you know, captain of the football team or basketball or academic top 10%. If that isn't what truly makes us glad, but it's rather wisdom, we better figure out what, what it means to have a wise child. What is wisdom biblically? A lot of times we say wise in just in the English language. Our, first, our mind first goes to things like, well, we're wise with our money. You know, we know how to work with people. You know, they're you know, wise. Biblically, wise is a word that means skilled. It's not just knowledge. Knowledge is, is just knowledge. Knowledge means you know things. Wise means you know how to live. You know how to live rightly. You know how to live properly. You know how to live in a healthy way. It's a word that means skilled for living, but skilled in that we know God's word, we know what God expects of us, and we live according to God's ways. It's because we have an innate trust in God. We have a trust in the divine. I believe God's way is best. I believe that God's word is a light unto my path, and I'm gonna follow it as walking through a dark world. And because I have a light on my path, I can see the potholes, and there's a lot of my buddies in it, but I can step around that because I've got God's word as a light. That is a biblically wise person. They make skillful choices in life, wise choices, healthy choices, because they've got a light from the word of God. They honor God, and they believe that his way is best. That's a wise child. We don't just want knowledgeable kids, do we? Knowledge, knowledge is knowing that uh, methamphetamines is a drug. That the knowledge is knowing that it'll hurt your heart, it'll hurt your circulatory system, it'll destroy your kidneys, it'll give you a meth smile, you know, it'll ruin your teeth. That's knowledge. Can a child know all of these things that it will destroy my life and still get into meth? He can. That knowledge didn't make him necessarily a better person. Knowledge isn't bad, but it didn't make him a better person. You can have a very smart kid, academic top 10%, captain of the football team, you send him to UK, and he gets a job that makes him $300,000 a year, and you'll still cry yourself to sleep and stain your pillow with tears. 
because knowledge isn't the be-all, end-all for parents. What God says to make you glad as a parent is wisdom, that they know how to make good decisions. You have a wise child. He may not know all that stuff about meth, but he knows one thing, I'm not going to do it. That child may not have the same knowledge, but his wisdom that causes him to sidestep it is going to make you glad. Glad, by the way. Proverbs 10, Proverbs 15, Proverbs Proverbs 27 all say that wise children make you glad. This is the same word used in Leviticus 23.40 to describe the kind of joyous environment that you would have at the Feast of Booths, also called Sukkot or Tabernacles. If you were here Sunday nights, we've been talking about that in John 7. And even this evening, we're going to finish up the Feast of Booths. But if you remember anything about that feast, Israel had a lot of feasts. They were a partying nation. I think it would have been a lot of fun to be a Jew. But there was one feast amongst all of them that was the most joyous party-filled time of the year, the happiest holiday without any question was the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles, Sukkot. It was, a, it was an agricultural holiday where giving, it's sort of a, it's similar to our Thanksgiving, but it had the spirit of our Christmas. You know, we have a, we have a holiday that stands out. If you're going to say, what's the most joy-filled holiday of our season? You'd probably say it's Christmas. I mean, we have songs that tell us it's the most wonderful time of the year. Their most wonderful time of the year was the Feast of Booths. So everybody, it's an ongoing cause of celebration and happiness, and people are waving palm branches, they're eating, they're camping out. It's a fun time. It's a big national reunion. That kind of celebratory environment is the word glad that God uses in Proverbs to describe how a parent feels when they see their son or daughter growing up to make wise choices. You want that kind of gladness. It only comes from wise children, children who have a respect and love for the divine. And yet, as parents, what, in our flesh, what do we naturally default to when instilling things into our children? Wisdom or knowledge? We tend to focus on knowledge. I mean, look at parents. You have kids zero to five. What do parents usually boast in? Hey, hey come here. Watch this. Watch this. Hey, watch, watch Johnny. Hey, Johnny, tell her the ABCs. Look, he's only three. Tell her the ABCs. You know, and, and parents, we love to boast in our children's knowledge. Or we're like, hey, hey, watch this. Hey, Johnny, read this book. Watch this. He's not even in school yet, and he can already read. And we get really excited about that. Or watch this. Give him this math problem. Ask him, what's two times two? And he can tell you. And we get really excited that our children are knowledgeable. And that's not a bad thing. Those are good things. But the things that God really wants us to instill into our children aren't the things that you can usually boast in. Wisdom is not something that we're usually boasting in. Hey, Judy, come here, watch, watch my kid, watch. He shares toys. <laughs> Check this out. You know, isn't, that, isn't that impressive? We don't usually do that. Or watch, he's, he plays kindly with other children. There's no bumper stickers that says, you know, my child is a respectful, honoring student at such and such elementary school. We don't have bumper stickers like that. And so as a nation, we tend to value knowledge over wisdom, but the Bible, it's the other way around. We value wisdom a respect for the divine, a respect for God, and that they learn to you know, honor and obey God. The opposite, if we don't have a wise child, we have a foolish child. Foolish doesn't just mean silly. I mean, most of our kids, they act silly, don't they? You know, you can have a wise child that still does silly things like put socks in their hands and dance around and just be, they're just goofy. In Proverbs, when he talks about foolishness, he's not talking about someone who's silly. Foolishness is the absence of wisdom. It's when we ignore what God says in his word and we go and do our own thing. The Bible calls that a fool. It's foolishness. It leads, foolishness, proverbially speaking, is synonymous with the word sinful. Foolishness is sinfulness. You're making foolish choices. You're making sinful choices. It goes against God's word. 
And so we don't want to raise up foolish children who don't know God. We want wise children who know God's word, who respect God, who honor God, who love God, who live out his word. But often what, the, what we're discipling our children into isn't valuing wisdom as much as it is knowledge. And so if our child needs to study for a test, we, you, know, you can go ahead and skip church. School is really important. But what have we just taught our child at that point? Academics is more important than your relationship with Jesus. Oh, yeah, you, you know, yeah, you go ahead and skip church. I understand. That's when they schedule all your athletic games. So go ahead and skip church every Sunday. What have we just discipled our child in? Be knowledgeable, be skilled in life, but, but God, that's something that you do if there's nothing else better to do. Oh, you have to work every Sunday at McDonald's? We understand. You've got to earn money, and so go ahead and do that. Don't bother going to church, and what we've done is we've inadvertently, we, we haven't tried to, but we have discipled our children in a lesson they're going to take for the rest of their life. God is the thing you do when there's nothing else left to do. If you don't have something better to do in your life, maybe then, maybe go to church. Maybe then invest in your relationship with God. Friends, we don't, want to dis we don't do it intentionally, but as a parent, we inadvertently disciple our child not to, be not to be wise, not to value biblical wisdom. And so instead, we've got children who are foolish. Foolish is a word that means without a respect for the divine. You don't believe God's word leads you to the best outcome. You have a suspicion about God's word. You doubt God's word. And so you make choices that go against the Bible, what God would call sin, and God calls that foolish. What does that bring to a parent? Proverbs 17, 25 says, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. If you have a son who grows up, and I don't care if he's you know, president of a corporation, but he won't talk to you, he makes tons of money, has a really nice house, he's famous, but he's busting up his marriage, has no great relationship with his children, is that gonna bring grief and pain to your heart? No matter how successful they were in high school, college, career, home, they got all these things that the world wants, but they don't have a close walk with Jesus and it harms all the relationships around them, it's gonna hurt them. And so the Bible says, a foolish son is grief and bitterness. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself will bring shame to his mother. Proverbs 10, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 15, 20, again, wise son, glad father, but a foolish man, okay, a fo by the way, foolish men start out as foolish boys, but the consequences get worse the older they get, have you noticed? When you don't take care of it when they're little, when they're older, they, that same heart attitude is bringing greater consequence in their life, and so he says, a foolish man despises his mother, Okay? We have children who grow up sinful, who are making sinful choices. They're, go, they're living in contrary to God's word. The Bible says it's going to bring things to our life, grief, bitterness, shame, sorrow, and they'll grow up actually to despise the parents who raised them. Friends, I don't wish that on any parent anywhere. But if we don't want children that are born foolish, then what we have to do is prioritize their spiritual development above all things. Is there anything truly more important than a person's soul? The Bible even asks us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but what? Loses his own soul. What does it gain you as a parent if your child gets all of their dreams coming true, but you've lost their soul? What profit is there in that? There's not. The Bible says that foolish child actually brings grief, bitterness, shame, sorrow, and even grows up not to like you as a parent. And that's the one thing as parents we want. We wanna be close to our kids, but God says you can't ignore your child's spiritual development and enjoy that relationship with them. 
Now, some people might be thinking, you yeah, know, my child it will never do that. You don't understand. My child is naturally good. Is there any, anybody who believes that children are born naturally good? If you believe that, it's because you're single or you're married but haven't had a kid yet. I actually taught a Sunday school lesson one day. Just to illustrate the depravity of man, I went and retrieved my son from the nursery, brought him in. I built up some blocks, and sure enough, like a clockwork soldier, he goes, and you see, he kicks the whole set of blocks down. I was like, thank you very much. Take Colin back to the nursery. You know, so I was just showing them. You don't have to program kids to, to do evil. You don't have to tell Johnny, hey, Johnny, you're being a little too selfless here. You know, you don't have to share your toys that much. You know, we don't have to teach kids that. What do we have to teach them? Johnny, quit beating your friend over the head with that. You know, quit biting him in the arm. That's what's bound up in the heart of a child. Proverbs 22:15 says folly. Remember, that's a word that means essentially sinfulness, foolishness. He says, it's bound up in the heart of a child that when a child is born, Psalm 51.5 talks about how when I was, he says, in iniquity, my parents conceived me, that at the moment the sperm and the egg come together, it creates a child who's full of sin. Proverbs 22.15 says that sin is bound up in their heart, that it's tightly wound around their heart. How do we remove that sin from a child's heart? He says, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Not talking about child abuse, but this is simply what the Bible is saying. And so theologically speaking, our children are born to this world not naturally good, and we just need to feed their natural instincts. What does the Bible say? Our children are born naturally sinful. They're born naturally selfish. They're born naturally evil. It doesn't look good in a Hallmark card, though. You know, congratulations on your bundle of sin. Hope you enjoy many great years with your sinful, fallen child. Nobody buys that card. But theologically, that is a true statement. We love our kids, but we also acknowledge that they do bad things, they do wrong things. But isn't that how God loves us too? God still loves us. Do we do bad things? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And yet, what does God say? But God so loved the world. We can love our kids and still acknowledge that they're not perfect kids. So what is a successful parent? We've done a lot of different parenting trainings, like I said, over the years, and as we've come through literally all the scriptures that we can find, that refer to parents, children, parenting, child rearing, they all, it, it really shakes down into about three broad categories here, and we, we summarize them with these three letters, TLC. Not tender, loving care, but maybe it'll help you remember. Time, love, and correction. These are the three things, these three components that every parent wants to balance in their child's life. You wanna balance them. So let's talk briefly about it. We'll introduce them today. We'll, explain, we'll expand them a little bit more in coming weeks. But the first one is time. A lot of times you talk about time with your kids. People talk about quantity and quality time. Which is it? I'd argue it's both. You know, because and how are you going to define those things too? Quality time, what is it? Ah, quality time is when I'm just having a lot of good fun with my kids. You know, we're got to Disney. That's quality time, a little quality time with the kids. You ever take an undisciplined child to Disney? Was that quality time? You know, you just spent thousands of dollars and put a, have a lien on your house to take them to Disney, you know, and the kid's throwing the Mickey ice cream on the ground and they're, they're screaming and crying. I know because I worked at Disney. I saw it many, many times. Quality time isn't simply that we are having a great time with our kids. We want quantity and quality time. Partly is quantity time is influence. Time is influence. The more time we spend with a person, the more it influences their heart to be like us. It's why gangs are so dangerous. Your kid is away from you eight hours a day with this gang. They obey the gang because it's time. 
but also quality time. Quality time is not just having fun together, but it's a time when we are able to pass on biblical values to our children. And there's a passage that speaks to both of these in Deuteronomy 6. He says, God tells the, the Israelites before they enter the land, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. In other words, you can't pass on to your kids what you don't have yourself. You can't raise up godly children if you're not a godly disciple yourself. And then he says, and you, who's you? It's the parents. And you shall diligently teach them to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. I want you to see here that the nucleus of a child's spiritual development, it's not a church and it's not a Christian school. It's the home. I've seen it over the years, many, many, many different illustrations. You can have a, a, a child who goes to a church that has a fairly tepid program. Maybe it's small. They don't have a formalized children's program or youth program, but the parents are godly individuals and disciple their own children. Do you know those children generally raise up into godly adults who love Jesus? And I've also seen it where you can come to a church like this one, where we do have a developed children's program. We do have a developed and intentional youth program. But if you parents aren't the ones instilling those biblical values in your child, they're going to walk away from it as soon as they leave. Don't give the church or a Christian school more power than you think. What God is telling us in Deuteronomy 6 is there's one thing. You can let someone else teach your kids about math. You can let them teach about history and science. But we can't delegate away spiritual maturity. We can't delegate the gospel simply to the church. The church supplements. Christian school can help your child. But it cannot replace what a parent does in the heart of a child. And so God says, you shall diligently teach your children. You spend that quality time passing on biblical values to your child. But is quantity time also listed in Deuteronomy 6? Can you see that anywhere? What does he say? He says, you shall talk of them when? When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. How often is that? That's all day long. Now, I realize in this culture, we're not an agrarian culture where our kids grow up and they, you know, hey, son, grab that, that their pitchfork and sling some hay with me. We don't live in that kind of society. But it does show a point that God intends for parents to spend time with their kids. How much time? As much as you can give them. We'll talk about this more again. Time is influence. The more time you give to your child, the more influence you have in their heart. The less time you give to your child, the less influence your words have. It's just a fact. And so when do we have love? So it's important that we spend time with our kids, quantity and quality, but also love. That we show our children acceptance, verbal and physical Love. We forgive our children. We restore them. We show them no matter what happens in life, you completely blow it in life and I have to bail you out of jail. I'm still going to love you. I won't agree with you. You shouldn't have robbed that convenience store. I don't agree with your lifestyle, but, but I still love you. And there's nothing that's going to take that away. A child needs to know that they're accepted. Psalm 103.13 talks about dads. It's expected that dads will be that. As fathers show compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So God says it's natural for fathers to show love and compassion. Isaiah 66, 13 talks about the mom. As the one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. The God's saying the love that they're showing is, is, is the example of the kind of love that I have for you, but it's expected that both moms and dads show physical love. Now that may be hard for you because you didn't grow up in a house with a lot of compassion. You know, I've talked about father-in-law. He grew up with kind of a, a, 
old-timey World War II type of home, and, uh, you know, the kids are getting in trouble, and the mom is, like, swinging baseball bats and, uh, you know, broomsticks and, like, broke their arm at one time, you know, and so maybe it's hard for you to understand and relate. If you grew up in a tough home, it's hard for you to relate maybe in a compassionate, soft, tender way to your kids, but it's something God says you can grow into, though, and so our kids need love. They need to hear it from our lips. I love you. I'm proud of you. And they need, to, they, need to, they need to feel it. I don't care if they get, you know, 14, 15, they're all greasy, and they act like they don't want physical affection. You still, daddy, pull those girls onto your lap, and you give that boy a hug, even if he stiffens up like he has rigor mortis, you know, and he's stiffened up. You give him a hug anyway and say, you know what, you may not hug me back, but I, you need to feel this, and you need to know I love you. Then there's correction. Kids need to know that you love them enough to provide boundaries for them. True love is it always just giving somebody what they want? No, of course it isn't. But giving somebody with something that they want may be the most destructive thing in their, for that person. You know, somebody who's a recovering alcoholic, they want alcohol. Is it loving for you to provide it? No. You're feeding their addiction. It's destroying their liver. You're not loving. You're loving yourself because you just don't want the alcohol to come in between your relationship, so you give them whatever they want. But if you truly cared about the person, you would do what's best for them, and you would actually withhold it from them. You would protect them from what's destroying them. Same thing with correction. A lot of times with parents, we think we're loving if we never discipline our children. Well, I never want to see them sad. I never want them to cry. I never want them to be hurt. I never want them to go through hardship. It's where we get that term lawnmower parent, you know, where they just mow down every obstacle in the way of that child so that they never experience pain and difficulty. Let me ask you this. Look back over your life, the times that you grew the most, the times that God drew, you drew near to the Lord the most, were those the easy times of life or the hard times? You were most shaped by those difficult things in life, those, those pains, those, uh, the times in the hospital, times you didn't know if you were gonna make it, financial hard times, you had to learn to trust in the Lord. It's those hard times that God forced you to go through. And yet, what is the one thing as parents we're trying to prevent our children from doing? Ever experiencing those hard times. The very thing that developed us into godly, mature adults, we're trying to protect our children. I never want them to have to go through suffering like I did. I never want them to go through difficulty like I did. I never want them to have to work out their difficult relationships. I never want them to feel pain. That doesn't produce godly kids. Kids need correction. Bible actually commands it. It says in Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Now, you may look at that word discipline and think, oh, well, you know, the discipline there, it just means that you need to provide structure and order for that child. That's not what this Hebrew word means, by the way. This Hebrew word actually means to chasten, to punish. And so God is commanding that here for us. If we withhold that, the Bible actually says, he who spares the rod hates his son. That we don't actually love our children if we withhold discipline and correction from them. We're not talking about child abuse, we're talking about discipline. Remember, God does the same thing with us in Hebrews 12, 6. It says, the Lord, whom the Lord, dis Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son he receives. If God loves you, is God gonna bring pain and difficulty into your life sometimes? He will, you can probably tell us when. First Corinthians 11 even talks about some of us, we have sin in our life and we won't deal with it. And God says, for this reason, some of you are sick and some of you are dead because you won't deal with your sin. 
God has a big stick. And we don't want God to have to use that stick on our kids. How do we avoid our kids from getting hit with God's stick? Okay, we have correction in the home. A short-term, temporary little, you know, swat on the backside will save them from destroying their entire life, losing jobs, you know, busting up marriages. And by the way, it's not illegal to spank your kids. I've confirmed it with the police. Did you know even on the Kentucky law books, it's still legal for teachers to spank their kids? It's still there. It's not illegal, but the world would have you feel like it's illegal. Why? Because Satan doesn't want you disciplining your children because he knows as soon as you discipline your child, you give them wisdom. You, the rod and the reproof, the Bible says, gives wisdom. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but a rod will drive it from him. The Bible says, discipline your child and he will give you rest and give delight to your heart. You're gonna enjoy being around your kids. You ever find yourself you don't wanna be around your kids? They just, you love them, but you don't like them. You don't wanna be around them. They just annoy you. The Bible says that's typically a byproduct of a child who needs more discipline. Because he says here, if you discipline your child, they'll give you rest. You'll be like, oh, it'll be a peaceful home. And it says it will give delight to your heart. If you don't wanna be, and by the way, if you don't wanna be around your kids, nobody else does either. You ever have a couple, as a young couple, you, you have this couple you get close to and you're, you're playing board games together, you're having fun, you're getting together all the time and they're just your best couple friend. The husband actually likes the husband and the wife actually likes the wife. And then they have kids. And then you invite their kids over and they're like, you know, pulling the couches apart like a professional wrestler, you know, and they're beating each other and they're screaming, they're dropping dishes, they're biting your children, they're breaking your kids' toys. Are you gonna have that couple over again? They do not bring you rest. They do not bring delight to your heart. And so it harms your relationship with them. Just remember that all pain is not evil. God uses pain to shape us and to, and to correct us. In fact, he even says he chastens those whom he receives. It's a, it's a word that means to scourge. It's difficult, it's pain. And so here, time, love, and correction we've outlined here are necessary for a balanced view of parenting. Think of a three-legged stool. If you have three legs on the stool, there's a good reason for that, by the way. Most stools have at least three legs. You ever try to sit on a one-legged stool? Does that work out well for you? Or, or even a two-legged stool, you can kind of you know, bobble back and forth, but you're gonna fall over. A three-legged stool, no matter which way you're leaning, you're stable. But what happens if you kick out one of those legs? You could probably stay up for a little bit on that two-legged stool, but it's gonna take a lot of work, it's gonna wear you out, and the slightest soft breeze is gonna knock you over. And so, if you will, this is a three-legged stool that we've gotta stay balanced on, because let's try, it, let's try it for a second. Let's kick out one of the legs of time, love, and correction. If you remove time from the parenting equation, what kind of parent do we become? We become an absentee parent, don't we? I love my kids. When I'm around them, I correct my kids, but I don't spend time around my children or even with them at times. Maybe you're in the house, but you don't engage with your children. We become an absentee parent. Post-World War II, uh, 1944, they coined a term called the latchkey kid. And that's because Rosie the Riveter stayed at work, and this is not a diatribe against women working, but it's just a reality. When mom and dad were both away from home all the time and kids were letting themselves in, it created, well, it created a different generation of children, didn't it? Proverbs 29.15 reminds us a child left to himself, just allowed to make all his own decisions, do his own thing, without really much influence of mom and dad, it says he brings shame to his mother. So that's an absentee parent. Kids need time. They need someone to tell them what's right in life. 
What if we knock out the leg of love? We're around our children a lot and we discipline them when necessary, but we just remove the love component out. What kind of a parenting archetype do we become? You become the authoritarian parent. The authoritarians. When you think author, uh, authoritarian parent, what, what comes to your mind? I think, of, uh, I think of the sound of music. You ever see that, Captain Von Trapp? You ever see that? Okay. Now y'all are awake, aren't you? Remember Captain Von Trapp? He's like, you know, and you got Liesel. I'm Liesel, you know. I'm Friedrich, you know, and they're going through and they're just, it's the authoritarian parent. He had time with his kids, but, and he was very disciplinarian and the children are like, yes, sir, you know, and with, a, with, a, with an authoritarian parent, the only thing they're concerned about is control. I just want to control the outcome. In an authoritarian parent, the parent is the authority. And from age five to age 18, the excuse the kids always get is do it because I, because I told you to. Now, when they're two, three years old, that's okay, parental authority. But as kids get older, they need something beyond us, a moral reason why. They need a standard beyond the parent themselves. But authoritarian parents are authoritarian because they just want life run the way they want it. So that's authoritarian. Now, most of us, we hear authoritarian, and we're, as a culture, we're terrified of the authoritarian parent. We are so scared of becoming an authoritarian parent that we take that pendulum and we swing it all the way over to the other side. We say, you know what? I'm just gonna love my kids to death. In fact, I'm gonna throw the discipline component completely out. What happens if you throw discipline out of your child's equation? You get what's called the permissive parent. A permissive parent is someone who never corrects your kid. It's the buddy parent. I just wanna be my kid's friend. I've had parents tell me that many times. I just want to be their best friend. Well, there's a time for that when they're grown. But when they're a child, they need a mom. They need a dad. But if you have a permissive parent, they just allow the kids kind of to do whatever they want. Remember Proverbs 29, 15? A child left to himself. Do what he want. Child left to himself. What would he bring you? Gladness? Bible says shame. He's going to embarrass you. He's going to, he's going to wreck his life with sin and immorality. You know, uh, culturally speaking, when we spent, we spent about 11 years or so in China, and one thing we found out culturally, we would do parenting trainings, they didn't love what the Bible had to say either. When the things I'm teaching you right now, they think every American does. <laughs> okay, that was supposed to be a joke. They say, this is just Western culture. This isn't Western culture at all. This is simply the Bible. And what they really had a problem with is this discipline component, because culturally speaking, the Chinese families don't discipline their children. They let the kids do whatever. In fact, they believe from zero to five, pretty much, you just let the kid develop naturally. And then when they go to school, it's the teacher's job to discipline your child. The teachers will use corporal punishment or whatever else they need to use. So it's believed culturally that it's the school's job, it's the state's job, it's the government's job to discipline my children. Do you know what that creates? Chinese have a term for it, xiao huangdi, little emperors. Okay, that's what they call their kids. And because the kids, they learn from zero to five, I rule this home. If I want something this way, I'm gonna manipulate and connive my parents. I'm, I, I learned that if I just throw a big enough fit, they'll give me the candy. If I scream enough, they'll do what I want. And kids learn like a little emperor to control mom and dads. That's a permissive parent. So what are we aiming at ultimately in the grand scheme of things? We're aiming for an authoritative parent. Now this is broadly different, wildly different than authoritarian. Authoritarian, who's the standard? Mom and dad. Do it because I said so. Authoritative means there is a standard for life and godliness, 
but it's not me, it's right here. This is an authoritative parent. They go to their child and they say, you know what, there's a rule book for life and you're under this and I'm under this. And I'm going to hold you to this standard because we love God and we trust that God's way is best. And so I will love you, I will spend time with you, but I'm gonna hold you to this standard. I will correct you when necessary. I'm going to balance time, love, and correction. I'm not just gonna be one of these things. We're gonna, as best we can, we're gonna be all three. Authoritative points to that authority beyond, that rules both child and adult. It's Andy Griffith. Okay, I've told you before, you're gonna hear a lot about Andy here. And if you haven't watched Andy Griffith, you need to go home, get your life right with the Lord, and you need to watch Andy Griffith. Andy, I could pick any number of episodes. I remember one I just watched the other day, and Opie comes, up, comes in, and his daddy's like, hey, where'd your cap gun go? Well, I traded it for these licorice seeds. Y'all ever have licorice seeds where you can plant these seeds in the ground and grow your own licorice? Opie thought you could. Opie got took. Opie wasn't very bright. And so his dad says, you got took. And that made Opie sad, but the next day he comes skating into the daddy's office and dad says, hey, where'd you get those new skates? I traded them to, you know, Billy for these licorice seeds. And well, that made dad mad because that's, it's immoral, it's wrong. You lied, you cheated this boy. And then later on in the episode, what do we see? Oh, Andy has to sell the, t- the broken downtown cannon. And so Andy starts lying. Oh, it was up Roosevelt or something, Bunker Hill, and it was the first up the hill, and it's all lies, and Opie hears it, and Opie resents his father for not following the same standard, but later on, he brings it up to his daddy's attention, and Andy repents. That's authoritative. He understands, you're right. We are both subject to this standard. I'm not here simply to control your behavior. I'm here to rear you to honor God and to respect God, to respect what God's law says, to let it be a light under both of our paths. It's a standard to which we're both accountable. Now, this is just an introduction, we're done, but I just want you to to hear this. Friends, no matter where you find yourself in the parenting timeline, there's always room for us to learn something new and to grow, and there's hope. You might think there's nothing I can do to restore my relationship with our kids. God's word says otherwise. God can restore to us those families. But we begin here with priorities that are important to God, time, love, and correction. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today that as we study your word that you have revealed to us just the importance of getting a hold of a child's heart and instilling to them not just knowledge, not just skill and ability to earn a good living in school later, not even just to simply obey us as the, as the prime authority in their life. God, help us to be authoritative that, that children and adult alike, that we're all bound to your word. God, help us to follow it with all our heart. Give us that blessing of raising kids your way and getting the blessing of God upon our homes and families. Lord, we can't do this apart from you. I pray to God that in families that are hurt, families that are broken, that you would restore them. Help us to approach each Sunday with an optimistic spirit that God, you can do miraculous things in our hearts as you convert us, as you as you bring our families into conformity with what your word asks for us to be. Let us ask this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. As promised, If you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook 
at UBC Ashland.